All right. So a few weeks ago, we talked about David and Goliath and how through the power of God that we can overcome the overwhelming problems in our lives, right? But this week, we're going to shift a few gears, and we're going to go from external problems in our lives to internal problems in our lives. And we look back at the life of David once again. Now, remember in the life of David before, we talked about that he was a young man at that time, and he was uh, new on the scene, really. And he came in, and he conquered that giant. That was a high point in his life. But here we're getting to... Uh, David as a middle-aged man. Now he is the king of Israel. Or before he was not, he was working his way up the rank, so to speak. But now he has been anointed king of Israel in place of Saul. He has been a, a, a military man for a while now. He was loved by the people. He was a just and fair king. And everybody loved David. He was known as a great warrior who conquered Israel's enemies. And he was extremely faithful to the law of the Lord. Things were going great for David for a while until we hit 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to talk about David's internal battles and how he overcome or didn't overcome those. So as we look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, as we begin this morning, it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David, who was king, sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now we don't know why David chose to stay at home. Instead of going out to fight at the front of the armies he normally done, maybe he was tired and wanted a break. I don't know. But ironically, David, who had defeated the giant so many years before, who had routed the Philistines, who had slain hundreds of men on the battlefield, was about to enter the biggest fight of his life, the battle against himself. The passage continues in verse 2. It says, It happened. Jane, I think I got that slide if you'll click. Thank you. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Uh-oh. Dun-dun-dun, right? That's the part of the story where it turn, takes a turn for the worse. First of all, thank you, Jesus, for indoor plumbing, okay? All right? So thankfully nobody's bathing out. Well, not many people are bathing outside anymore, uh, particularly beautiful women. That would be a problem for a lot of us. Second of all, David the giant slayer here has become David the peeping Tom. In a matter of just a few short years, a couple of decades, here he is. The one who claimed who slayed the giant is now peeping in on a woman bathing on a roof. Now, the text here indicates that David didn't just have a passing glance, but he gazed for a while, right? He was up on a high position, the, the king's parapet, so he could look over. And Jerusalem was a multi-leveled city because it's on a hill. And so he was able to look down and see lots of things, and his gaze just happened to fall on this woman bathing on her rooftop. Now, this was a problem on multiple levels, obviously, but the biggest issue was that that woman that David was eyeing was already taken. She was married to Uriah the Hittite, who was a warrior in David's own army, who was fighting at the battle that we just talked about, right? He was off at Reba fighting in the king's army as he was supposed to do, and David was not, and David spots Uriah's wife. He didn't know it was Uriah's wife at the time, but he knew it was someone. And so David here, who was a great military tactician, this man was brilliant on the battlefield. He could do so many good things, an awesome warrior, made a critical error here because he allowed his desire to control him. And that desire led him straight to sin. He who had kept God's law faithfully broke it by desiring something that belonged to someone else. He coveted is a biblical term, but he just wanted something that somebody else had. That's what it boils down to. That was his first sin. 
And if he had broken off his gaze, and if he had asked for forgiveness from God right then, it probably would have been okay. Everything probably would have been all right. But as it is so often the case, his sin didn't go away. It compounded. He again broke the law. He asked his servants to have Uriah's wife Bathsheba brought to the palace. And she came because she couldn't deny the king. No woman would have said, nope, I'm sorry, I can't come to see the king today. She couldn't deny him. So she came to the palace, and David invited her in. And she, uh, she came in, and once she arrived, David turned his fantasy that he had on the rooftop into reality. And he again broke the law he had promised to uphold and live by as he committed adultery by sleeping with him. After the act, the Sheba returned home, and to David, it was, it was done, right? He was the king. He saw something he wanted. Even though he knew he wasn't supposed to do it, he went through with it, and everything's done. He sends his wife back home. He rides at the front. Maybe some palace people know about it, but nobody else knows, and it's the king, so he can typically do what he wants, and nobody really questions it too much. So nobody's the wiser. His sin remained a secret, or so he thought. But the trouble really had just begun because Bathsheba gets home. And after a few weeks, she discovers that she's pregnant. She sends word to David because she knows that he's not Uriah's child because he's not home. She knows she hasn't been messing around with anybody else, so it's got to be David's. So she sends word back and she says, um, I'm pregnant and it's yours and I'm having it. No, I don't know if she says that, but she's going to have it, right? So David becomes concerned because he's king. And sleeping with a woman is one thing. Having an illegitimate child is another. Because as king, you have an heir, right? And if you have to have an heir, then they have to be a legitimate heir. And it has all these rules and regulations to it. But if you have a child out of wedlock, that's illegitimate. And while only will his reputation is the awesome king, the great warrior king, the, the man who can control everything, the man who's supposed to be this pinnacle of, of uh, worship of God, the one who upholds the law, all that would fall apart. If anybody found out about this, he'll be ruined. So he cooks up a scheme to fix it. He sends word to Joab, who's his commander. Remember, Joab was sent out to fight at Rabbah. So Joab's at the front where David's supposed to be. Joab's at the front, and he sends word to him. He says, okay, Joab, you got this guy named Uriah. I need him back here at his house for a little while. I know he's fighting. I know he's a good warrior, but I need you back. He was one of the 30 mighty men of David, which was the best of the best, all right? He was like the... Um, uh, well, not the Army. What is it? The Marine Corps? Uh, maybe the Navy SEALs? I don't know. He, was, he was the best of the best, right? So, Uriah gets sent back. David says, send Uriah back home. I got something for him to do. So, he comes back, and David enters him into the palace. He says, come on in. Come on in. I know you've been away a long, long time. Tell me how things are going at the battle, and then when you're done, you can go back to home, and you can spend time with your wife, because I know it's been a long time, and you want to spend time with your family. And so, he sends, uh, or tries to send Uriah back home, but Uriah won't go back home. Uriah stays at the palace. And David says, why didn't you go back home? You've been gone for weeks. Why haven't you gone back to your wife? What's the problem here? And Uriah says, I can't go back. There's people in the front still fighting. I can't go back. There's, that's my brothers in arms. I cannot desert them and, and come back and do what I'm not supposed to be doing when they can't do the same thing I'm doing now. I can't do this. He was an honorable man. But David said, okay, come back again. Stay another night. Stay another night. We'll just, you come hang out in the palace, we'll keep eating, it'll be great. And he goes back home again, he says, I'll go ahead and go back home. 
And then Uriah still doesn't leave. He says, fine, you know what I'm going to do now? We're going to, have, we're going to have a big party. We're going to have a big feast. Everybody's going to be drinking. And David's thinking in his head, if I get Uriah drunk enough, then he's going to go back home and he's going to sleep with his wife and everything's going to be square because then nobody's going to know that's what's happened. That's going to be Uriah's child and I'll be free and clear. It was a pretty scheming individual in some cases. He thought he was smart in this case, but he wasn't. So he tried to do it again. So he gets Uriah drunk and he thinks, oh, Uriah's going to go home and Uriah sleeps it off at the palace. And so David is in a fix. Now, as I mentioned before, sin has a way of compounding. First, he gazed a little too long. He wanted something that he couldn't have, wasn't supposed to have. Second, he got it. He he'd committed adultery by sleeping with Bathsheba. And now he's plotting to take care of Uriah. So since Uriah won't go home, David keeps trying and Uriah stays, so David comes up with another plan. He says, all right, Uriah, go back to the front. I'm going to send you back. You're going to work, uh, you're going to work back at the, at the front of the line. You're going to fight again for Joab. And he sends with Uriah his death note, really. It's a note for Joab's eyes only, who's the commander of the army. He says, Joab here, uh, this is for you. Read this. And so Uriah delivers his note, King David's note, to Joab. And in the note, he commands Joab to storm the gates of the town they're battling. All right? So he says, Joab, okay, I know that you're not winning. I know this is the most idiotic military strategy of all. You don't just go and storm a gate without the proper tools or equipment to be able to take it. All right? You don't do it. And so he sends his people out. He says, Joab, send everybody to the front and make sure that Uriah is right in the thick of the fighting. Make sure he's at the front of the gates. And when he's at the front of the gates and everything is in the, is, is the most uh, critical time, pull everybody else back. Now, to Joab again... Joab had to know something was going on because Joab knew David wasn't stupid. Joab knew that David was a smart man and to attack a gate with, all your, with even a great force was, was not a wise thing and especially to pull everybody back. So he knew something was going on with Uriah but he still didn't say anything and he did as a good military man typically does and he listened and he obeyed the command. And so Uriah and the army goes to the front of the gates. They're fighting, and it's intense. There's arrows flying. There's, there's stones flying down. There's all this crazy stuff going on. And Uriah gets killed, as David had planned. And so David, whose sin started as a simple lingering gaze, compounded and compounded and compounded until he had essentially committed murder. He might have murdered him with his own hands but he murdered him to cover up for his first sin. Now, to protect his reputation, David takes Bathsheba as his wife about a week after the mourning of Uriah. So Uriah would have died, and they would have got news back, and Bathsheba would have went into mourning for a week for her husband. And after that, David brought her to the palace and said, you'll become one of my wives, and our child will be legitimate, and everything will work out okay, thinking that everything is all right. Hmm. But everything's not all right. Months pass. David is wrestling every day with the consequences of his sin. Then one day, Nathan, who is a prophet, who is somebody who speaks for God, is all a prophet is, was sent by God to confront David. We're going to read through what Nathan told David right here in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. We're going to start 1 through 4 and then pick it up. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, 
There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveler who came, excuse me, there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Everybody got the story straight? Rich man who has all these herds and flocks, one poor man with one little lamb that he can fed at the, at every day in his house and let out. It was like a pet. And although the rich man had everything he could ever want, he took that one little lamb from the poor man and killed it and gave it to the guest. Flip to the next slide, Jane. Verse 5 said, Then David's anger, when he heard this, was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David was... was incensed as he rightly should. He was the judge, he was the king, he was going to pass judgment on this man because he saw this great injustice in this situation and he said, you know what? This guy not only desert, has to, to pay back the penalty, he really should die for what he has done because he had no pity. And Nathan says one of the most powerful statements in the whole Bible. He said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I encourage you to read the rest of that because God lays into him. God lays into him and says, you are that man. You who have it all took from the one who had just one beautiful thing. And you thought since you were powerful, you thought since you could just, you, you thought you were a king, you could do whatever you wanted to do, you thought it'd be okay, and you tried to cover it up, you thought it was a secret, but there is no secrets in the eyes of God. There is no secrets there. David thought his secret was safe, that his sin was covered by time and distance, that he was wrong. He tried to marry Bathsheba to undo the, the, the illegitimacy, but that couldn't couldn't fix the situation. The passing of time couldn't make it go away. Every day he had to live with the past, even after the birth of his son, he had to live with the fact that that son was conceived out of his sin, not out of love. And by the time Nathan arrives here to give him this story, he's buried under his own guilt. So when Nathan tells him the story of the rich man, it's fascinating uh, psychological examination here is, is Nathan's laying it out, and Nathan's not giving any hints that this is David. He's just laying it out there as this is a case that David needs to, to resolve. And so when David lashes out against this man, figurative man, this person didn't even exist, when, when he lashes out against this, he's erupting in anger, not because of the man's guilt, but because of his own. He was mad, so mad beyond mad at that situation. He would never have said in a normal situation that the man deserves to die. He would have said, well, you need to pay back fourfold and then it'll sort itself out. That's an injustice, but we'll resolve it the way the law demands. But he was so mad at himself. He was so mad at himself for messing up that he took it out, or he would have took it out on that person. He was the king, right? 
He was supposed to be strong. He was supposed to be the wise leader for his people, yet he had been weak. He had been foolish. He had been unable to control his passion and his desire. And in condemning the man to death, he was really condemning himself. Not wanting him to miss it. And that's when David unleashes the you are the man statement. Let me tell you something that nobody wants to hear. You are the man. You are the woman. I am the man. There isn't one of us here who hasn't lived with something in our past or in our present that we don't want someone else to know about. There may be some of us who walked in this morning with something like that. And just like David, we transfer that guilt sometimes. You know, someone who's a liar thinks everyone around them is lying, don't they? Someone who's jealous of someone else's things is upset at themselves because they're an inadequate provider. We are quick, so quick, to point out those that are guilty, but are so slow to remember our own guilt. I'm sure some of you are thinking, can't we just go back in time to a few weeks where we're talking about conquering giants instead? <laughs> can't we do that? Pastor, that was, that was a much better message. To which I say we can't conquer the giants in our lives without winning the war that wages inside us first. And to win that war, we need to recognize that even the biggest of sins starts small. James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived birth, uh, or conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. One small thing can bring forth death. That little white lie we tell when we're trying to cover up something, a small mistake we may have made the lingering gaze on a TV show or a website that we know we shouldn't be looking at, the jealousy we'll feel when our neighbor gets something we feel we deserve. We all carry these things with us, each and every one of us. When it's left unchecked, it'll fester and grow and ruin not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. It does. It happens all the time. Because sin is like a rod on a piece of fruit. It may start as a small little dot, Ever notice that? Ever have an apple or a, or a banana or something? Have one small little bruise, and you wait a little while, and it eventually will, the whole thing will rot away. The whole thing. Sin is like that one little small dot that given time will ruin it all. That's what makes conviction so necessary. David was convicted that morning. He convicted himself. He condemned himself, essentially, because there wasn't a man. He was condemning himself to die. He deserved death. Conviction is the eye-opener that allows us to see the rot before it's too late. If you have an apple or you have a banana, if you see in the beginning, you can cut it out, right? You can cut out that bad part and you can eat the rest and it's good. You're, you've saved the whole piece of fruit. But if you never see that rot, one day you'll bite into a, a bad apple, right? One day you'll get that, that worm, hopefully not. I've never done that. But if you get a worm in the apple, then you can bite it because you didn't pay attention. You didn't see what was in front of you. Conviction is that eye-opener that allows us to see it before it's too late. We need, to lay, we need God to lay it all out, just as he did to David, to lay it all out before us and to leave us with no excuse. 
We also need our brothers and sisters to hold us to God's standard. Nathan was doing that to David, right? Nathan said, all right, David, you may be the king. And Nathan was a brave man here because Nathan could have got killed. There's plenty of prophets who died before. Just because you come saying, I'm from God, doesn't mean it's going to save you. Most, most of them got killed, right? I could, be, I, could be, I could be running out of town this morning after this message and for some of you, right? I could. That's okay. But Nathan could have been killed. But Nathan was standing up for what he knew was right. He had to tell what God had given to him with no thought of the consequence. We need to hold each other to God's standard to keep our heads where they're supposed to be so we can live the better life that God has in store for us. It's not so we can call each other out and point out our flaws of each other. That's not what we're here to do. But to say, hey, I know you've been struggling with that, and it seems like you've still got some problems with it. What's going on? Let's talk through this, because we don't need to let each other waller in our own sin. That's spiritual malpractice, right? If you had a doctor and went to the doctor and he said, oh, you have a tumor, you'll be fine, go home. That doctor would be sued tomorrow. But we allow ourselves to sit in our own sin and see the rot on each other's faces or parts of our bodies, whatever the case is, and never do a thing about it. Say, all right, we'll see you next week. Hope you're going to do better. And I know why we do it, because it's hard. I don't want to point out that you got something going on, because I know I have stuff going on. But we have to, as Nathan did. So we can live the better life that God has for us. Conviction of those secret sins that we all carry is necessary, and it should lead to confession, which is what happened with David here. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, <clears throat> he laid it out, buried under the weight of, his, of that conviction and, and the guilt that he felt. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. I, he admitted it. He said, I, I, I confess. I am that man. And in greater detail, because that seems like a short reply, and then the story kind of goes on, he lays it out. He wrote it all out in Psalm 51.1 and 51 in general. So I'm going to read through that. Pardon the bottom, sorry. 51.1 says, and this is David himself writing this out after being confronted by Nathan. So he's reflecting back on how he felt at this point. He says, have mercy on me, <clears throat> O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Verse 6 says, Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So purge me with hyssop, and, shall I, be, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken... Rejoice. I love that line. Create in me, says verse 10, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I've got to read it again. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Conviction should lead to confession. When con convicted, David didn't attempt to ignore his sin. He didn't try to bury it. He didn't try to cover it up again. He'd come to the point where none of that was going to work anymore. He had come and it was laid out before him. He said, you know what? I cannot go the same way I've been going because I'm going to keep getting the same thing I've been getting. I have to confess what I have done. I have to beg for mercy and forgiveness. If conviction is the awareness of the rod of sin, confession is the permission for God to cut it out. Let me say that again. If conviction 
is the awareness of the rod of sin in our lives. Confession is the permission for God to cut it out. When we allow conviction to take us to the point of confession, we're allowing God to perform life-saving surgery. And you say, well, that's a little extreme, Pastor Jason. I don't think if I sin, I don't think I'm going to die tomorrow. Well, maybe, maybe not. But it's going to stay in you and affect you for the rest of your life. And I guarantee it's going to affect someone else. Because we don't live in a bubble. Every single thing we do affects someone else in our lives. God can perform life-saving surgery. You can begin to cut out those things which lead to death, which tear our friends and family apart. Is it painful? Oh, yes. <laughs> Is it abs- it's terribly painful. Is it necessary? Absolutely. Absolutely. If a doctor who pointed out a tumor in your body and said, oh, you got a tumor, come back tomorrow, we're going to have surgery, we're going to cut this thing out, and you got the surgery done and everything went smooth and you came out the other side, and he said, all right, now that we did this surgery, you have 10 more years left to live, you'd say, thank you, <laughs> thank you so much for finding that and helping me improve my life so I have 10 more years of my family and my friends and my life that I have to, to live on, right? It's the same thing with spiritual sin. It will eat you away from the inside out if it doesn't get dealt with first. Allow God to perform that life-saving surgery. We cannot be who we were made to be without putting off what we used to be. Now, this really hit home with me when I was putting together this message. Because, you see, I was planning on being here two weeks ago. And I already began to work on this, this message for, this, for what would have been two weeks ago Sunday. My family and I, as we've already discussed, we're going to leave. We're going to go on vacation. Had a beach vacation all planned out. It was going to be nice. Had a beach vacation all planned out. We're going to leave immediately after church that Sunday. I had plans to talk to people, have come here and have a great time as we always do. I was going to be able to, to speak to some people and get some things wrapped up. And then we were going to go take care of my responsibilities and leave as we had planned. As the week drew on, I got a call from my mom in Georgia saying that my grandfather went into hospice. Um, and during the week, his health had rapidly declined. So I got the hospice call on Monday, and I got another call on Wednesday saying that he had passed away. He'd been sick for a while, so it was not unexpected. And Mom said, yeah, we had the, uh, we're planning the funeral. And it's going to be on Saturday. That's the Saturday before we were supposed to leave. And that night when I spoke to my mom, I made the decision to remain here. I said, I'm going to stay here. I said, I was too far to go. He, was, he passed away in southern Georgia where I'm from. I said, it's too far to go. That's a 20-hour drive, six children, a hurricane in North Carolina that I had to drive through. That's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> I said, let's stay here. I'm sorry, Mom. I understand you, you wanted me to be there. I've got responsibilities. It's too much effort. A lot, of things, a lot of things can go bad, I thought. We'll hang out here. But I went in the church office Thursday after I'd had the phone call Wednesday night. I went in the church office Thursday, and I sat down on the computer, and I was looking over what I had gone through so far and what God had shown me so far, and 
I began to talk to God. I said, all right, Lord, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to, what do you want me to, to, to tell your people? How, did, how does this fit in? Where does this puzzle pieces fit together that your work can be made known? And within just a few minutes, he began to point out not what you needed to hear, but what I needed to hear. He pointed out to me the real reason I'd stay behind. You see, the day before, I had come up with every good reason to stay, every right reason, every sensible reason. There was a hurricane evacuation underway. I had commitments and responsibilities here. I'd already made plans, potential plans, to take my boys to a football game on Saturday. Lots of things lined up. But as I sat there Thursday, God revealed my secret sin. Pride and selfishness and stubbornness. I was selfish because I wasn't thinking of my family back in Georgia. but of what I wanted to do. And I was prideful because I thought that Sunday morning wouldn't go as well if I wasn't here. <laughs> Saying it out loud sounds dumb. But as I read Nathan, what Nathan said to, to David, I realized that I was that man, just as David was. And I had to confess that, that after that morning, it was about 11 o'clock on Thursday, and I had to confess to, to God that he was right. And I had to ask forgiveness from him. Because if anyone comes here on a Sunday or any day of the week and meets Jesus, for the first time, or grows closer to him, it isn't because of me. It's because of him. It's because he's here, not me. So I sat there at the computer that morning, laid it all out, and said, Okay, God, <laughs> you win. <clears throat> And we packed the fastest I think we'd ever packed because <laughs> it normally takes us all day long. <clears throat> and we left that Thursday, three days before we planned on leaving. And I want to tell you that because I was obedient, because I'd confessed my sin, and because I was doing what was right and what I knew God wanted me to do, I want to tell you that that made everything okay. <laughs> I want to tell you that was the best vacation I ever had. I want to tell you it all went so smooth. It didn't. It was a train wreck. There was lots of things that didn't go as planned. We tried to make the best out of it. And I'm not going to complain. But it wasn't as smooth as I had envisioned in my head before all this went down. But I still knew that no matter how good or bad it went, that's where I was supposed to be. That's what I was supposed to be doing. And I tell you all that not because I want to put myself up. Because I just want you to understand that I think it's important also for me to confess that, that same thing to you this morning because it helps me remember and lets you know 
that I'm not better than anybody else here. Paul said he was a, of sinners, he was the foremost. He was the chief of sinners. That helped him remember and appreciate God's mercy and forgiveness and helped him to show mercy and forgiveness, which leads us to the last step. Because that's where confession should take us. David, myself, and all of us here don't deserve. They're in desperate need of forgiveness. And that's where conviction and confession take us. Psalm 51.1 says, what do he say? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Have mercy. Mercy is not a game thing. In his confession, David didn't assume forgiveness, but he humbly asked for it. He begged for the very mercy of God. He is asking that God totally remove the stain of this sin from the record of his life, so that between them, it is as though it has never happened. Blot it out. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse my heart. Make me a, create me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Make my broken bones rejoice. Wash all these things are symbols for him saying, I know that I don't deserve this. I just beg you because I know you're a loving and forgiving and awesome, merciful God and abundant in mercy and grace. Please, Lord, cleanse this between me and you. Wash me clean as though it had never happened. He knew that his sin had caused a problem in his relationship with God, and he knew that he couldn't do anything about it, but that God could. So he cried to God for help to cleanse and to forgive. And thank you, Jesus, that he is quick and merciful to forgive. John, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, as David did, he is faithful, meaning he, always, he will be there continually. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is an amazing promise and hope that we have this morning because there's some people in here and out there that have done some messed up things. But God, 1 John, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God for the mercy and grace that comes through Jesus. Without it, we're nothing. We're nothing. Now, just because that guilt is removed doesn't mean the consequences of our actions go away, though, does it? See, in 2 Samuel 12, I'll leave it up to you to read the rest. There are going to be consequences for David's actions. His place as king is going to be challenged. It really went south for him after this, really. It went downhill in a big way. His place for king is going to be challenged. His son, who he had... Uh, gotten out of, uh, in a, a moment of adultery, would die. That's just the tip of the iceberg. His own sons, his legitimate other sons, would come up after, and they would try to rip the kingdom from him. They would take it almost result in civil war. Things would go radically downhill, all because of this. Now, sometimes there are consequences, <laughs> terrible consequences for the sins that we commit. And even when we receive forgiveness from God, because he is faithful and just to it, there are consequences that are still there. His forgiveness doesn't immediately set all the wrong things to right, but it does. Here's what it does. That's why it's important. It doesn't immediately set all things wrong to right, but it does begin the process to heal our wounds and empowers us to begin to heal the hurts of others. If, it's a big two-letter word, if we are willing to forgive as we have been forgiven.
We have been forgiven wholly. Will we forgive others wholly? We have been forgiven completely. We will forgive others completely. We have been forgiven graciously. Will we forgive others graciously? We don't deserve grace. That's the point. It wouldn't be grace if we didn't deserve it. Yet God, in the form of His Son, Jesus, gave it to us anyway. Will we be a people who confess and receive forgiveness and in turn grant forgiveness to others? Is this a day that is acceptable to the Lord? Will we forgive others as we have been forgiven? Or will we be consumed by our secret sins, rotting us from the inside out? Let's pray.